welcome to the Inside OSU podcast. I'm Molly Shigru. Today we'll be talking about a part of the world that we should all have an interest in, and that's the Middle East. It's complicated. There are a lot of moving parts which have had a huge impact on the rest of the world. Rami Khoury is a journalist who spent 50 years living and working in the Middle East in places such as Lebanon, Palestine, and Jordan. He sat down with Burns Hargis to discuss U.S. military intervention and involvement, media coverage, and the ongoing Arab-Israeli conflict. Here's the interview with Rami Khoury on this week's Inside OSU podcast. Well, I have 50 years of journalism experience in the Middle East, uh, most of it uh, editing local newspapers and magazines, TV, radio, but also deeply engaged with the American and international media. I used to write for the Washington Post, Boston Globe, I appear on NPR, CNN. So my, my whole career has been Middle East based, but quite global. And uh, as you can imagine, it's been kind of frustrating these last 50 years with everything that's been going on over there and the, the difficult links with the United States. But I've been uh, still, I continue to be a journalist and I'm, I'm now into academia. And I tell you, higher education in the United States is one of the most impressive things in this country, among many other impressive things. But higher education is one of the reasons I sense why this country is so powerful, so productive, so innovative, and, and so respected around the world. Everybody wants to come here and study. Yeah, and it's, it's frustrating that some here want to disinvest. And, well, I know that, and you guys have to fight the good fight, which you are doing. We'll try. Yeah. Well, it seemed like back in uh, 2011, 2012, when the Arab Spring uh, uh, came about, that we really were headed in the right direction. Mubarak was gone, Gaddafi was gone, uh, and it just seems like we've done a U-turn right back to uh, strongman leadership and uh, and just chaos. Right. Uh, what what's happening? Well, what happened was the uprisings, the uh, spontaneous uprisings, were so spontaneous and so quickly successful that the people who were out in the streets and who overthrew some of these dictators had not prepared to take power. So there was a moment of sort of uncertainty and the, the governments, the regimes, the strongmen, very quickly realized that they better act fast and they did. So some of them fought back like Gaddafi, uh, um, like um, the leader uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh in Yemen and there was wars there in Syria. The war is almost over but continues. In other places, Tunisia, the leader was thrown out. So the different end results but what happened basically is that the autocratic, authoritarian, top-heavy Arab modern state regrouped and took power back in most cases. Like Egypt. Like Egypt and Syria. Uh, and uh, the, the double problem with that is that so many of these people continue to be supported from overseas, from Europe, from Russia, from Iran, from the United States, from China. So like the Egyptian government is one of the most autocratic in the world. There's about 40,000 Egyptians in jail simply for their political views, not for committing crimes or anything. And this is a real problem. Civil society has been shut down in Egypt. Uh, and the government continues to wipe out any kind of independent political activism, even really expression. And they get support from major Western and international powers. Well, you brought up Iran. Uh, of course, uh, President Trump uh, did away with the Iranian nuclear deal. What were your thoughts on that? Because it does seem that Iran has continued to 
uh, stir up trouble and and uh, in in the Middle East. Right. I, I would use slightly different terms than stir up trouble. Iran continues to expand its links around the Middle East and has done so for many years. The terrible irony and terrible and cruel for Americans is that one of the ways that Iran has done this is because the American invasion of Iraq in 2003 created conditions of chaos that opened the door for Iran. This is one of the great difficulties. So I think while- They've been at war for many years, right? Iran and Iran Iraq. Iran well, Iraq. back, yeah, they were, yeah. Iraq and Iran were at war for about 10 years in the 80s. So the, 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 the real dilemma is that Iran definitely does some bad things. Uh, at home, it's not a very open democratic regime. Uh, abroad, they do some things that people don't like. Uh, their links to Hezbollah are very controversial, to Hamas, other places. But at the same time, they are widely uh, respected around the region by a lot of people, but not a lot of regimes. So there's many layers to the relationships between Iran and people in the Arab region. And Israel, of course, they're not on good terms with Israel, though the irony is that before the fall of the Shah, the Iran and Egypt, uh, Iran and Israel were very close, but then the Shah fell, the Islamic regime came, and things changed. The short answer is that the nuclear agreement that was reached between the United States and Western powers and Russia and the UN and Iran was one of the high watermarks of diplomatic common sense. It was a really good agreement. There were issues that might have been tightened up here and there, and of course they could have continued to be worked on. But the fact that after all these years of the U.S. having uh, bad relations with Iran, suddenly negotiating directly with them, and achieving success, and the Iranians gave way, and the Americans gave way, and everybody conceded something, but everybody got what they want. I mean, it was a, it was a classic case of diplomacy succeeding. Uh, and they should have just continued doing that. Um, so the Trump decision to pull out of it is widely uh, criticized around the world. The Iranians are perfectly willing to play ball, as we saw from their behavior. But they also have a bottom line, which is a critical one for in any negotiation around the world. They want to be treated with respect. And they want to negotiate on the basis of existing international law and norms and conventions. And they don't want any power, whether it's the Russians, the Chinese, the Americans, or the Israelis, or anybody come to them and say, we're going to lay down the law, and here's how it's going to be. They won't accept that. Right. And nobody should accept that. It, it, going back to all the turmoil in the, in the Middle East, does it, is, is the root of this uh, the uh, re, uh, realignment of the Middle East after World War I? Partly, partly, not completely. Partly in the sense that the countries that were created after World War I, from 1920 to 1960, more or less, most of them have not been stable, and most of them today uh, are probably 70% of them are not on a development trajectory. They've stalled, and they're going back, and there's a lot of poverty, and there's a lot of desperation, unemployment, and, and problems. And that's why we were getting all these wars and terrorism and refugees and, and extremism. Some of them are doing okay, mostly when they have a lot of money. But the problem um, is beyond just the nature of these states. There are really three big issues that come together over this last century. It's really a century from, literally, from 1918 till 2018. One problem has been the nature of governance. Except for a brief period in the 30s and 40s, all the modern Arab countries have not been governed democratically, none of them. The only exception is Tunisia in the last five years, and they're still struggling. So the nature of autocratic top-heavy government 
in Arab countries. And these are governments that have failed the tests of, of development and citizenship and statehood, and they've let corruption happen in most cases. So that's one. The second one is about 70 years of the Arab-Israeli conflict. That conflict has been central to the instability of the region. And you've got the Israelis fighting with the Iranians and with the people in, uh, in Egypt years ago and Syria and all over the region. So the repercussions of the Arab-Israeli conflict continue to plague the region. And the third reason is we've had nonstop military intervention in the Middle East by external powers not just for the last 10 years or 40 years, since Napoleon, over two centuries ago. You've got foreign countries, and it's worse now than ever if you look at Syria, the Americans, the Russians, the Turks, the Iranians, everybody's in there fighting each other. It's, you know, in northern Syria, about three, two, three years ago, was like a cafeteria food fight. So these three factors, the Arab-Israeli conflict, poor Arab governance, and international military intervention nonstop for two centuries, the three of them together explain why this region continues to be so unstable. It, should America stay engaged in that part of the world? Because we have many in these, this country that would just as soon come home. I think America should be engaged, but it should be engaged in the same way that it was engaged, say, in Northern Ireland, where it was very central to a peace agreement in Northern Ireland. And it should be engaged like it was engaged in the nuclear deal with Iran. In other words, use its power and influence in a manner that engages with other people in an effective way, in a legitimate way, and also on the basis of two critical criteria. One is you engage on the basis of the rule of law, international rule of law, UN resolutions, treaties, conventions, and there's tons of laws that people need to apply. And the second principle is you need to treat people equally, that, you, that America should not go into any part of the Middle East and say, we're going to lay down the law. They should come in and say, we have our interests, we have our legitimate rights and grievances, you have yours, let's sit and work them out. That's why the Iran of agreement... Of ISIS doesn't pay any attention to the UN. No, of course, resolution. but ISIS is being defeated. But ISIS was an aberration. But ISIS well, this, was... That, don't they actually say Al-Qaeda is stronger than they've ever been? Well, this is, again, a cruel and terrible irony that Al-Qaeda today... Uh, and we're just just after September 11th, uh, the week following September 11th now. Um, it's seven, 17 years ago this happened. And if you look at the continuous global war on terror that the United States has led, including the continuing war in Afghanistan, that has never stopped, and the growth of al-Qaeda has been consistent ever since. So there's a, there's a clear message that military action alone will not end terrorism, but in fact tends to provoke new terrorists and new resentments. So I think we've all learned a lot from the last 17 years. Uh, one is that you've got to fight terrorism, but you've got to fight it by attacking its root political causes, not just by military, military um, action. But to answer your question, yes, the U.S. should be uh, involved, but it should be involved not in a, just a unilateral way. It should be involved by working with others. What the U.S. did in Northern Ireland and uh, Iran was, was, was terrific, and it was in the best American tradition. You consult with your allies, you respect international law, you deal with your foes with respect. I mean, what the U.S. is trying to do now in North Korea is fascinating. It may or may not work, but the fact that Trump went and met with the North Korean leader, I think, is a very positive 
sign, and and that's what you got to do. Of course, you're a journalist, uh, and you you uh, you not only read but also appear on uh, on American media. Uh, how do you feel the uh, the American media is covering the Middle East? Well, I've followed this and been part of it for the last fifty years since 1968 is when I started in journalism. My impression is that, by and large, the U.S. media, by and large, does a, does a poor job in the sense that it, first of all, is very superficial. Uh, second of all, it looks at the Middle East almost purely from the perspective of American interests, and most countries do that. But quality media doesn't allow itself to be an instrument of propaganda or narrow national self-interest. Quality media looks at American interests, looks at other people's interests, and tries to give the, the audience an, an honest uh, analysis. And the third problem I have with the media coverage is that it tends to focus on the sensational, which is, again, understandable. You know, the media is a business. It's not a welfare society. They want to make money. They make money by showing bombs and, and terrible things and drama, and uh, mm -hmm. unfortunately. But quality media goes beyond that. The world doesn't hear about the totality of the Arab world. It only hears about the violence, the extremism, the anti-Americanism. The picture of the Arab world that most people in the U.S. have comes from weekly news magazines, and it's usually some scarved lady carrying a machine gun or something like that. Now, that is an accurate picture of one lady at one point at one time. It's not an accurate picture of the whole Middle East, as if it's I were to present the United States as the... Uh, quarterback of the uh, Oklahoma State Cowboys and say, this is the United States. It's not. It's a, it's a little slice of the United States. It's a nice slice. It's an accurate slice. But it's not the whole country. There's farmers. There's bankers. There's fishermen. There's students. There's all kinds of stuff. So the media, I think, in the U.S. has to try to do a more comprehensive coverage. And they, they do it on other things. For instance, if you look at the coverage of, say, issues in this country that are uh, controversial or, or touchy, say, immigration, uh, race relations, uh, water pollution in Flint, Michigan, uh, Ferguson, they, they go into deep into the story. They give you a more rounded picture. They get views from all sides, and they present it pretty accurately. They can, so the media can do it, but they tend not to do it for the Middle East. We can't uh, we can't wrap this up without talking about Israel and uh, and Palestine and Lebanon, your home your home country. Mm. Uh, well, actually, Palestine is my home country. I'm Palestinian, Jordanian, but I live in Lebanon. So I see. They're I see. all they're all my home. So, is there any any hope for uh, a two state solution in uh, with Palestine? And I know I know things are getting uh, uh, getting a little hot there in Lebanon even. Yes, all of this region, Lebanon, Palestine, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, the, it's, it's in deep distress for many reasons. And uh, th there is hope, but not under the present leaderships, the, neither the Arab leaderships nor the Israeli leaderships, and certainly not the American leadership, because the United States was the mediator. For 20 years, the U.S. was the only party that the Israelis and Palestinians would allow to mediate. And the U.S. did a lousy job. And the Israeli leaders veered to the right. The Palestinian leaders veered off to different, they broke up. And so it's, it's a collective failure. It's, you can't really blame any one person. I mean, I would put a little bit of extra blame on the Israelis, but the Palestinians certainly are to blame. And the Israelis kept building settlements and expanding. And the Palestinians were pretty incoherent in trying to come up with a clear 
plan and, and get international support for it. The Americans were not very partial and not very forceful mediators. So th there's plenty of blame to go around. And the Europeans were just, you know, watching and not doing much. And, and, and the, there was global support for a peaceful settlement, especially after the Oslo Agreement. Yeah. Um, but it just never moved in the right direction. But the, uh, there's no way the Israelis will ever accept a one-state solution. They'd be outnumbered, for one thing, uh, in terms of as a democracy. And they certainly don't want to get in the shape that South Africa did. So. Right. So, uh, the Israelis, you know, Zionism, the national ideology of the Jewish people as they see it, Zionism wants a Jewish state. They don't want a state of all these people. Yeah. And so they're not going to accept the one-state solution. We've always said one state is the most equitable if everybody has equal rights, and like happened in South, South Africa, but they don't want that, or Northern Ireland, say. So you have to really look at two states. And two states, I believe, is still doable, but it gets harder every year because the Israelis are building settlements, annexing land. Uh, but it's still doable because there's nothing the Israelis have done in the occupied territories that's not reversible. It can be uh, changed. And uh, what the leaderships on both sides have not shown uh, the courage uh, and the diplomatic skill to move to that situation, even though ironically the Israeli people and the Palestinian people have repeatedly expressed for the last 30, 40 years in polling that they will be willing to make reasonable sacrifices and compromises to have a permanent and just peace. But it has to be just. It has to be seen to be fair by both sides. We've had enough experience with track two negotiations where people unofficially sit down and talk about things. We've had enough experience to know how a peace agreement can be forged. But it's going to require some really tough decisions on both sides, and neither side yet appears willing to do that right now. But one day will come when they will, they will have to do it. Rami Khoury was brought to the OSU campus by the School of Global Studies and Partnerships in collaboration with the School of Media and Strategic Communications. He was a guest speaker for the OSU Global Briefing Series, which features prominent speakers to help students gain insight to the trends, conflicts, and issues that are shaping our world today. Thanks for listening. I'm Molly Chagru. Tune in next week for another edition of the Inside OSU podcast.